chapter 32, continuing on through our study. And um, we'll just begin by reading. We're going to make it through the first 12 verses. So Genesis chapter 32. Oh, one other announcement. I forgot, Justin, sorry. Uh, the, The bridge, the youth center downtown. By the way, guys, we're consistently hitting about 170 kids every Friday night. And um, we are in need of volunteers. We're extending our hours on the 21st. Is that right? So in two weeks, we're extending our hours to the 11:30, and we're trying. To, we're doing that to draw more of the high school age kids in. We're kicking the junior high kids out at 9:30, and then from 9:30, 11:30 will be high school only. But um, we have a faithful staff of volunteers. We're looking for more. So there's a meeting down at the bridge, 310 Main Street at 1230. Lunch is provided with some, some freaky fast um, sandwiches from, where are they coming from again? Jimmy John's. There you go. Freaky fast. Where they give out free smells. Um, but even if you're not a staff, this is a staff meeting for volunteers, but if you're interested in finding out more about it, and if you think maybe I would like to volunteer, this is your chance to come see the bridge, uh, see what we're about. Um, we need help. We really, really do. God's opened the doors, and as you guys know, God's put it on, on the heart of this church to do this. And I know this because a lot of you guys, as we've gone forward with this vision, a lot of you guys have donated with your time and construction and with your, with your finances and made this thing come come to fruition with God's leading, God's help. But that was just the beginning. Now there's this awesome ministry field. You know, I got to sit with this. I don't even know if we're going to get to the Bible study today. God darn it. There's this one kid, and we all starting to get stories like this. Um, I'll tell him his name's C. Um, it's not his real name, but it's close enough. He's, he's in high school. He's 10th grader. And um, my first encounter with him was not so well. He was uh, uh, not doing what he was asked to do. And, and he's actually taking the cue ball, and he was bouncing as hard he could. And I said, hey, guys, we can't do that. Don't want to do that to the pool table. It's not good. And I went to the bathroom. I came back out, and he's doing it again. So I, I put my arm around him. I said, come on, let's go talk. And he did not want to talk. And he was, he was uh, being called out. He didn't like it. And it's obvious that he's uh, one of these rougher kids, probably doesn't have a good home life and that kind of thing. That's just what my approach was. Well, we got things set between us, and um, uh, he, he actually said to, to Martin, he's all, he's all, he's all, I don't like that guy. Is he going to be around here very often? He, Mar- <laughs> Martin's all, well, he, he kind of heads this thing up, and, and he's all, oh. And, um, but since then, him and I become buddies, and we talk to each other, and we see each other. I've seen him in the community. Well, I sat down with him this last Friday and broke my heart. He's from a divorced family. Uh, his mom has not remarried but has several other kids with other men. She's uh, alcoholic, and um, uh, he's in a, a very bad environment. He lives in Florence. His dad lives in, in um, Canyon City. And uh, his mom works shift work in one of the medical industry fields. I'm not going to tell the home. But he walks from Florence to Canyon City every morning to go to school. And he gets to stay with his dad on the weekends. And the um, and, uh, cool thing is, he shared a story with me. I get to be involved in his life. And I get to love him and build a relationship with him. And you know what? Um, he even is sensitive to some spiritual things. He said he's been to other youth groups, and it's just kind of him going on his own. And he, he basically, we said, is he considers this his youth group. 
and, and, um, but there's, there's tons and tons of kids down there. And, and with 175 kids, we need more people. We meet the ratio um, by sure. Our goal is 15 to 1, and we're doing that. Um, but we would really like to have more volunteers down there so that we can have these, this couch time with these kids and just asking them and visiting with them. You know what? Um, God's doing a good thing, and I invite you to be a part of it. So come to the meeting, 1230 at the bridge. All right? Genesis 32. I'm going to read, and uh, you can follow along. So it says in verse 1, So Jacob went on his way, and um, the angels of God met with him. That'd be really cool, wouldn't it? And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. And he called the name of that place Manam. Then Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Sire, and to the country of Edom. And he commanded them, saying, Speak thus to the Lord Esau. Thus your servant Jacob says, I have dwelt with Laban and stayed there until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, and male and female servants, and I have sent to, sent to tell my Lord that I might find favor in your sight. Then the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he, is, and he also is coming to meet you, and 400 men with him. So Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people that were with him and the flocks, and the herds, and the camels, into two companies. And he said, if Esau comes to the one company and attacks it, and to the other company which is left will escape. And Jacob said in verse 9, O God of my father Abraham, and O God of my father Isaac, the Lord who said to me, return to your country and your family, and I will deal well with you. Verse 10, I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and all the truth which you have shown your servants, for I crossed over this Jordan with my staff. And now I have become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother and from the hand of from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he come and attack me and the and the mother with my children. For you said, you said, I love that. You said, God, you said, I will surely treat you well and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Lord. You've made promises to us. And God, the, the, the truth is, is we face really hard things in this life where we feel cornered and fearful and greatly distressed. And Lord, maybe there's even someone here this morning who, is, who feels that way, who's going through that thing, Lord. But let them see this morning, God, that they have nothing to fear. They can trust in you and wait upon you. And that you, God, will do what you have said you're going to do. Lord, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in these, in these cha- starting chapter 32 and on through chapter 36, um, we're going to be reading, like we just read here, about several accounts, su- several crucial experiences in Jacob's life. And these, these events um, illustrate for us um, the battle. The battle. The battle that goes on within all of us. And um, it's the battle between the flesh and the spirit. Um, the old man, the Bible says, which wars against um, the new man, which has been born in us through the Spirit of God, through our faith in Jesus Christ. 
And this inner struggle that we go through is well-documented and even written about by the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans in a very personal and intimate way, I think, that we all can relate to, or we all have at one point or another been in a spot where we've expressed these same words in one way or another to God ourselves. And Paul in Romans chapter 8 or 7 verses 18 through 25 said this, he said, for I know this. For I know that in me, that, that, in me that, that is, in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me. In other words, I want to do the right thing. I, I will to do the right thing. He says, but how to perform what is good, I don't find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now, if I do... What I will not to do is no longer I who do it, but sin, the sin nature, the old man that dwells in me. And I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. (laughs) Lord, I will to do good, but there's still this Sean problem, right? There's still this Paul problem. For I delight, he says, in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity of law of sin, which is in my members. And then he says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, (coughs) with the mind, I serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. And I think we can all relate to that. And as we look forward to what Jacob experienced in this chapter and and on through the next four chapters, we need to keep in mind that, that he had left this place where he had dwelt for 20 years. He had left Padan Haran and his deceiving father-in-law, Laban. And, and 20 years of his life had been committed to that place and to that man. And even though his departure, remember, he, we read about that last week. He kind of snuck away. He didn't talk to his father-in-law about it. He, he, even though his departure had not been handled in the best way, because it was really rooted in fear, um, we, we see how the door... And sometimes this is how life is, right? Where we, we come to certain seasons and transitions and times in our lives where the door's closed, where we go, okay, that's the past, and now we're going to the future. God's redirected us, he's closed some things, and he's opened some doors in some other ways. And, and we've seen that happen last week um, with the final covenant that, that Jacob and Laban made together in the mountains of Gilead in a place called Mizpah. And it was, it was a covenantal agreement to go ahead and live in peace, okay? You go your way, I'll go our way, my way, and we'll agree to live in peace with one another, even though we're separate. But even with this closure, even with this transition, there were many future uncertainties. And man, that's the way that it is. is when God closes one door and opens up another, you're going through that and you're going, God, I'm not so sure about all these things. And maybe it's because of something that has been in the past, or maybe it's because of what lies ahead in the future that you don't have all the answers to. And, and with Jacob, there were many future uncertainties, specifically as we see what's going on in this chapter, over an unresolved past. An unresolved past that Jacob would have to face while on his way home through the land of Canaan, or to the land of Canaan. And even after 20 years had gone by, Jacob's past was now catching up with him, and he was afraid of what might happen when he returned home. But in the midst of these many uncertain things, one thing was for certain. Jacob would have to face his brother Esau, and he would have to deal with what he had done to him. But before Jacob meets up with Esau, we read here in chapter 32 about 
some other meetings, some other encounters that he had. And as we study Jacob's actions, okay, this is where it becomes applicable to our own lives and personal and, and, and where God's going to, I think, work on our own hearts. Because as we study through this and see Jacob's actions during these times of crisis, we see the conflicts that all of us occasionally experience, a conflict between faith and fear, right? A conflict between trusting in God or scheming, meaning doing things in a way that seems right to us, or that conflict between asking God for help, God help, and then acting in a way that kind of says, I don't even know God. (laughs) And in light of this, we need to keep in mind that a crisis does not make a man. A crisis only reveals what a man is made of. And even though Jacob had experienced God's hand of protection and God's hand of provision over these last 20 years, it's obvious that he still struggled, still struggled with trusting in faith and trusting in God's for provision and protection. And consequently, this moved him to do things in a way that seemed right to him. And so in verses 1 through 5, back in this chapter, we read first in 1 and 2 that Jacob, as he went on his way, he left Laban there in Mizpah and continued on to the land of Canaan. It says that the angels of God came to meet him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, he made this declaration, this is God's camp and it shall be called, and he called the name of that place Maenaim. Now, it's clear that as Jacob left Mizpah and Laban behind and continued on towards Bethel, it's very clear that what was in the front of his mind as he kind of set Laban out of his mind, what came into the front of his mind was his brother Esau. Considering as he traveled on, um, geographically speaking, he would have to go near Mount Sire, where, where Esau lived. And in these first five verses, there are several things for us to take note of. The first is revealed by the message in verses four and five. This message that Jacob sent to his brother uh, um, um, explaining where he had been for the last 20 years and and explaining how he had prospered during that time and and also explaining how he he wished to have peace with his brother. And in light of this, you know what we conclude? We conclude that there was absolutely no interaction and no communication between these two brothers over the last 20 years. And that says a lot. It reveals a lot. And in light of this, we conclude that that, um, the depth of betrayal... And the size of the problem that had been created when Jacob had deceived his father and and tricked his brother out of this firstborn blessing, that it was huge, it was big. It didn't just go away on its own, at least in Jacob's mind. It kept them separated, two brothers who'd grown up together, and they were in their 40s when they departed. It wasn't like they were, you know, infants. They had this relationship and this life together But all of that was done away with in that one act where a 20-year separation resulted. 20 years. Now, even though there is only a brief mention, something else for us to look at, a brief mention of this in verse 1, of these angels of God who came to meet Jacob, it's significant. 
The way that this chapter starts off and the transition from leaving Laban and now coming and being confronted by Esau, the, the transition in verses 1 and 2, which speak about these angels, is significant. And when Jacob saw these angels, we'll turn in verse, told in verse 2, that he made this declaration, that this is God's camp. Or as some other translations might read, this is God's host. Speaking of that heavenly host of God's angels. And, 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 and I think this, this, where it says this is God's host, and that's uh, in the old King James, I think it's a better translation from the original Hebrew because what Jacob saw with these angels of God who came to him, it wasn't just a, a random meeting or a coincidental kind of thing. They came to him, and with this, as Jacob seeing this, what he was seeing, he was something, seeing something more than just angels coming and setting up a camp. It wasn't just angels camping. In fact, what God was actually, um, what Jacob was actually given is he was given this privilege of seeing the angelic army of God. So imagine that. Picture an army, soldiers covered in their battle array with their swords in their hands, ready for battle. This is what Jacob was seeing. And I could only imagine what this experience must have been like considering the Bible records the reactions of many other people who encountered angels. And typically, even when they see just one, they're astonished and overwhelmed by what they see. Now imagine seeing a whole army of these angelic beings of God's heavenly host, ready for battle. And in the context of Jacob seeing this army, this angelic army of God, we see how God, and this is where the significance of it is, we see how God knew what was going on inside of Jacob and came to encourage Jacob by revealing to him this, that all the forces of heaven were by his side, encamped with him, protecting him. And with this force, what, what reason would he have to fear his brother Esau? Now, apparently this had the comforting effect that it was intended to have because in verse 3, we see that Jacob's reaction or his response, right, was to send messengers before him to Esau, his brother in the land of Sire, to let him know that he was coming home and he desired peace. Listen, I don't want to battle with you. By the way, I got a whole angelic army by my side. You know, that's probably not what he said, but that's what he was thinking. He's saying, I want peace. Don't make me pull out my angel. But, the, but Jacob responded where he, was, where he was fearful and distressed and the idea of confronting his brother after not seeing him for 20 years, the brother who wanted to kill him, while he, the reason for why he was leaving, all of these things, he was coming back. God said, I got your back. Look at this. And so Jacob responds, hey, brother, I'm coming home. I want peace. I want peace. Now, the cool thing about God sending this angelic help is that in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, guys, it tells us that God's angels are still being sent from the very throne room of God in order to minister to us, to those, it says, who will inherit salvation. Who is that? It's you and I. It's those who put our faith in Jesus Christ. For those of us who will inherit salvation today, right now, in the problems that you're facing, God has put his angelic forces by your side. And in Psalm chapter 37, verse 7, David, David proclaimed, he said, the angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fears him and he delivers them. 
And when we begin to consider that God is sending his angels to protect us and even to fight on our behalf, you know what? We can take comfort and know that if God is for us, then who can be against us? If God is for us, then who can be against us? And, and this was the visual message that God was sending to Jacob. Jacob, I'm for you. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about your brother. But in spite of the encouragement of this army of God's angels being encamped with him, we see that Jacob allowed for his fear to get the best of him. The battle of the flesh against the spirit. And he panicked once he received this news from the messengers who returned. And in verse 6 it says, it says, Then the messengers returned to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he also is coming to meet you. And 400 men are with him. So, as Jacob was traveling slowly from Mizpah towards Bethel with his family, his servants, all of his flocks and his herds, the messengers went ahead to Mount Sire, to Esau. And by the time Jacob, we'll find out later where this all kind of takes place, he, he reaches the Jabbok River, which is a, it's a, it's a tributary. It's a small river that dumps into the Jordan. And by the time he reached this place, the messengers, he'd actually crossed over the Jabbok River, getting ready to drop down into the land of Canaan, which would require him to cross over um, the Jordan River, the return route in which he came, when he gets to this place, the messengers return. And they give him this wearisome message, saying in verse 6, as I said, that Esau and 400 of his men come in to meet him. And instantly Jacob, according to verse 7, if you look there, what was his response? He's greatly afraid. And as he gave in to his fear, Jacob panicked and he took this defensive action. He took this defensive action by dividing his people into two companies, and he devised this plan of escape. Not a plan for battle, but a plan for escape. Now, when you study the geography where Jacob was at, we see that, that in a sense, he was cornered. There was the tributary of the Jabbok dropping down into the Jordan River, and the Jordan River here, the land of Canaan here, and boom, here was Jacob. And his brother Esau was coming from Sire. And he had all these people and, and all of these animals and all of his servants and his family. And in a sense, he was cornered by the Jabbok and the Jordan. And by dividing his people into two companies, Jacob in his mind had already concluded that, that he was going to be attacked and that he was going to be defeated. So by dividing into two, what he was really planning, he was planning on sacrificing half of everything that he had. Half of his people in order that the other half might escape while Esau was attacking. Even though this, this might have been the best defensive option that Jacob could have devised considering his people were cornered, the fact of the matter is his plans, Jacob's plan stunk because he was reacting to his fear. 
And in, in doing so, he was only doing a thing that seemed right to him by dividing all that he had into these two companies. And when we consider how God had just revealed to Jacob that another company, God's army of angels was in camp with Jacob. We see how foolish his fear reactions were. But guys, Jacob's an example, is he not? He's an example for us. And he's a bad example at this point. But he's an example for us. He's an example for us. And he paints a picture of really that struggle that goes on between the old man who only knows how to do things one way. And the new man who needs to constantly rely upon God and to cling to God, God whose ways are limitless. The Apostle Paul, writing to the Colossians, guys, he spoke about these very things and compared the futility of man's wisdom and the futility of man's way of doing things to the wisdom of knowledge that is contained in Jesus Christ. And in doing so, he encouraged the church, those in Colossae, to not waver from their faith, but to live their lives rooted in Christ Jesus. I, I, Justin and I were talking this week, and, and we referenced this verse because th- there was this um, lady who came in to speak to this youth ministry group here in Canyon City, and, and, and she's one of these uh, government people who are highly educated that has this plan to help our youth, and, and their plan to help our youth is to get a bunch of people together and talk about it. That's it. I promise you, that's it. There's nothing more. And there's all this government funding going on for these groups to be formed here in Canyon City and Florence where we've gotten this grant money, where they've gotten this grant money, to have basically these these focus groups to talk about it. And then to find other programs like the bridge, and they can come in and tell us how to do what we're doing. And I keep thinking all the time, why don't you just give us the money? And Jess and I were talking about it and go, we don't need man's wisdom. We don't need man's way of doing things because we have something so much better. God's word and the Holy Spirit living inside of us. Jesus Christ and the knowledge that we have of him and the relationship with him. Why would we turn to the foolish vanities and philosophies of men? And lots of times it, that, that men is this man. It's us. It's our own way of doing, our own way of thinking. And Paul, combating that, encouraging the Colossians, he said this in chapter 2, verses 6 through 9. He says, so then, just as you receive Christ, Jesus Christ the Lord, how did you receive him? By faith. So then, just as you receive Jesus Christ as Lord, continue to live in him Rooted, meaning the foundation, and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to that that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophies, which depend on human traditions or the basic principles of this world. Humanism, rather than on Christ. Why? It's this simple. Because in Christ, for in Christ, all the fullness of deity, God, lives in bodily form. And he's been revealed to us. And we have a relationship with him. And everything that we need is in him. And even though the foundation of this message reminds us of this one thing. God knows best, right? 
Even the foundation of that, that verse of this message reminds us that God knows best and is more than willing to share his wisdom and ways of doing things with us when we ask. The underlying truth, guys, that is attached to this, the assumption is that, that the underlying truth is, that is rooted in this message is the fact that God who knows best also has a plan. He's not sitting around talking about it. He's got a program. He's got a plan. And he's got a way of doing things for whatever we face that is far better than anything that we can devise on our own. Now, one of the reasons for why it's best for us to be living our lives rooted and built up in Jesus and not according to a way that seems right to us is revealed in the fact that when Jacob received this message from these messengers about his brother coming with these 400 men, you know what? He didn't even know for sure what it meant. In other words, Jacob's information and understanding of the situation was limited. It's finite. And so too it is for us when we are in certain situations. He didn't know what Esau's motive was. And what was he doing? He was expecting the very worst, was he not? And so in doing so, Jacob jumped to the conclusion that his brother had come to take vengeance on him and his family. And we know that Jacob did so because he had a guilty conscience, right? He had a guilty conscience. And a guilty conscience office often makes us see the darkest possible picture. But the fact of the matter is, is that Esau had no plans to attack Jacob. And when we get to chapter 33, we read that Esau had, had forgiven his brother. And he was glad to see him. However, because Jacob only saw the darkest possible picture, we see that he was only focused on himself, not only on what he could do, but on what he had done, right? And this blinded him to the fact that God's angels were encamped with him. What Jacob needed was faith, but when faith, guys, you guys know this, when faith is crowded by fear, our fears when faith is crowded out by fear, the truth is, is that we're all prone to go to the old man and to start scheming and to start trusting in our own resources. What can I do? D.L. Moody once told a story. He's a great evangelist. D.L. Moody, he once told a story about a lady who had come to him and said this. She said, I found a, I found a wonderful verse in the Bible to help me overcome fear. And she quoted Psalm 56, verse 3. When I'm afraid, I'll trust in you. To this, D.L. Moody responded saying, I can give you a better promise. And he quoted Isaiah chapter 12, verse 2. Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. I love this because it reminds me that we as, that, that reminds me of the fact that we as believers who are walking by faith, we don't need to fear the enemy. We don't need to fear whatever bad news might be coming our way. In fact, in Psalm 112, it tells us that the, it, it, the Psalm 112 is all about the person of God, who, person who fears God and, and finds delight in his commands. And it says about that person, the person who fears God and finds delights in his commands, says in verse 7 that this person, he shall not be afraid of bad news. His heart is fixed trusting in the Lord. But 
Jacob was greatly afraid. He was greatly afraid, and he was distressed over the news he received. And so he did what Jacob did best. And when you're full of fear, that's what you're going to do. You're going to go back to doing what you do best. It doesn't mean it's good. It's just what you do best. If it's running, you're going to run. If it's scheming, you're going to scheme. If it's trying to fix it with your resources, that's what you're going to do, what you think you do best. And Jacob reverted back to doing what he did best. He reverted back to his old ways of scheming. Needless to say, Jacob overreacted. But if you're like me, there are times when we do the same thing. Sometimes when I find myself reacting to a potential situation, the what-ifs, right, By preparing in my mind for what I might say or do if this thing, whatever million things it might be, might happen. And in doing so, I set up safeguards. At least I think I'm setting up safeguards with with often without ever any real evidence or need to do it because of fear. Because of the circumstances. And as a result, you know what happens? I'm consumed with anxiety. You ever done that? Lay in bed, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? You start playing the scenarios. The what ifs. Over and over again. You go, well, I'm going to say this. No, I'm going to do that. And the fear leads to this, this place of anxiety and worry and you don't sleep and you're consumed by it and you're grumpy at your wife and you're grumpy at your kids and, and, and all of these things and you become depressed because anxiety in the heart of man, the Bible says in Proverbs, I think, 17, says anxiety in the heart of man brings depression. You know what the Bible says the root of all depression is? Anxiety, worry, fear. And we do this, and as a result, I'm usually consumed by my anxiety. I'm worrying over something that I have really no control over. But like Jacob, guys, I eventually get to the place where I call out to God for help, right? God, I can't fix it. Help. However, I think it's safe to say it's always better to start out praying than it is to travel down the road of anxiety, be filled with worry, and then pray like Jacob who made it to the place of prayer, finally did, and called out to God in verse 9, saying, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord who said to me, return. God, you said, return to your country. You're the one that told me to do this, God. And to your family, and I will deal well with you. He said, God, I'm not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which you have shown your servant. For I crossed over this Jordan, basically said, with nothing. God, you sent me out with nothing, just a staff. And now look, look what all I have. I've become two companies. Guys, Jacob's prayer is one of the greatest prayers recorded in Scripture. Not, not, not considering Christ's prayer for his disciples before he left. But out of any earthly man, out of only, out of only created man, Jacob's prayers is, is, is one of the greatest recorded in scriptures. And I'm going to explain to you why. But understand that Jacob's prayer, the prayer that he prayed here, um, even though it's a prayer of faith, it's a real weak prayer of faith, isn't it? And this prayer is like the, he's, he's Jacob in this prayer, he's like the, he's like the father of the demon-possessed child who called out to Jesus in, in, in Mark chapter 9, verse 24, when he said, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. 
God, you said, but I'm afraid, I'm scared. And, 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 even, and even though every statement in this prayer indicates that Jacob had this personal and profound knowledge of God's ways and of God's character, we see that he was praying in desperation. You ever done that? Pray in desperation and not in confidence? That's this prayer. And as Jacob called out to God, we see that he did it first in humility, saying, Lord, I'm not worthy of your mercy, but please help me. And with this, it's apparent that Jacob had been brought to the end of himself. And when we give way to fear and to anxiety rather than going to prayer first, what God does is he allows us to go through it. Okay, you think your way's right? Walk down that path a little bit because it's going to bring you to the end of yourself to where you're going to come to God who can when you can't, who will when you won't. And he comes to the end of himself, and in doing so, he realized this. God's my only hope. Durr, right? God's my only hope. But guys, I say that because we do that. We know this. The new man knows this, but the old man sees a new way, a better way. Or the old way, I guess. And the truth is, as we look at this and we see Jacob, these words of Jacob, there's, there's also the sense that he was uncertain and he was doubting if God would once again help him because of his unworthiness. You ever been there? Where you're praying in desperation, you know you need help, you know God's your only help, but you're going, will he, will he help me this time? Look what I've done. Look at the mess I've got myself into. I've not trusted in him. I'm not worthy. And the truth is, guys, none of us are worthy, are we? We're not worthy of God's mercy, yet God promises this. If we humble ourselves and we come to him, that his mercies will be new to us every single morning. Meaning he doesn't hold back his help from us. He doesn't hold back from those who are humble in heart. In other words, if any, if any help God was to give or if any good thing that God was to do for us was based upon our worthiness, then none of us would have any hope. That's what it means. And God, who had helped Jacob, and God, who had done many good things for Jacob, at the end of verse 10, we see that Jacob reflected and acknowledged these awesome works that God had done for him. I love this, because Jacob said that when he had first crossed over the Jordan River some 20 years ago, all he had was this, this staff. But now, as he prepared to cross back over the Jordan River, he had family, he had servants, he had flocks, and all these things were more than Jacob deserved. Yet as Jacob remembers God's goodness here in this prayer and how God had exceedingly and abundantly blessed him more than he ever could hope for or imagine just like God does and has done for us, he also remembered and called upon God's promise. You see that? God, you said. God, you said. You told me to go back. You said it'd be all right. You promised these things. God, you said. And he, he, he reflected back on, on God's promise to protect him, saying in verse 11, just simply, Lord, deliver me. And then in verse 12, for he said, and by, Jacob was putting, by this, Jacob was doing this, guys. He was putting his fragile faith in God's faithfulness. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Believing that God would protect and would deliver from Esau. Why? Because he had said so. Justin, if you and the worship team want to come back up, we'll end with this. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says this, guys. It says, but without faith it is impossible to please him. 
For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And the fact of the matter is, guys, all of us can look back on God's goodness, correct, in our lives. All of us can look back on God's faithfulness in our lives, like Jacob did, and then call out today in the moment in faith for whatever it is we might be facing. In fact, this is what God tells us to do. But we must believe that he is a God who will answer our prayers just like he has always answered our prayers in the past. But there's one other aspect, guys, and we're going to see this next week. In doing so, it requires us to wait patiently on the Lord. And what that simply means is, is okay, don't get on your knees and pray and then, and then get up like you've just huddled up with God and you're like, okay, here I go. Unless God says, okay? But that's not how God works typically. You pray to God and God goes, you sit there and you let me do it. You wait on me. And that's what, that's what Jacob doesn't do. We'll talk about that next week. But we're going to end with these two verses. Isaiah 40, verses 28 through 31. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God... The Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, he never faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak. And to those who have no might, he increases their strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord, those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. And the psalmist in Psalm 27, verse 14 says this. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage. And he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Father, we will wait on you. God, we wait for your return as by reminder through the communion this morning. And Lord, we'll wait on you for whatever we have going on in our lives. Trusting in you, God, that you're doing the work even when we don't see it. That you have the ability and the power and the strength even when we don't. God, even when we don't understand your infinite ways, Lord, we will wait on you. Knowing, God, that you are for us and nothing can come against us. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, guys, will you stand?